Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Little thing I learned pretty early on in marriage is that it can be pretty hard to find television shows that you both like to watch together. You may have this in your marriage or with some of your friends, you know, it can be difficult. Uh, that was something Shannon and I found. It was, it was pretty difficult. I'm more of a Breaking Bad kind of guy, uh, whereas Shannon maybe lands more in the Parks and Rec category or, or Schitt's Creek, which is also an, both amazing shows, don't get me wrong. But throughout our marriage, we've had to find shows that we both enjoy, you know, together. After a long day, you don't want to go into separate rooms and and veg out. You got to find something you want to watch together. And one of the first shows that we found was Parenthood. We really enjoyed watching this together. If you haven't seen it, it's about one kind of large family uh, across three generations uh, living in the, I think they're in the Bay Area, but anyway, they all live near each other and they interact all the time. And it's it's funny and heart-wrenching and all the things. Um, there's, a, there's a man named Zeke, yeah, there he is, uh, who, who plays the sort of quintessential patriarch of the family. He's a tough, fix-it-yourself kind of guy, right? He's a father who wants what's best for his kids and a grandpa who just loves his grandkids. But the thing about Zeke is he's not exactly the best husband. Zeke and Camille, they, they have a rocky marriage, and over time they've grown distant from one another in the show. You see that. Toward the end of of season one, they begin to see a marriage therapist, albeit against Zeke's wishes. Um, but Zeke has this thing where he, he overpowers Camille. He, he doesn't listen to her. He doesn't let her be herself. And, and over the years of their marriage, this has just weighed down on her. So there's one scene where Zeke is having an argument, more a conversation kind of argument with his, his daughter. And it goes on and on and on. And finally, Camille, she's just sitting there during this whole argument. Finally, she interjects and, and has something to say. But Zeke just keeps pushing his point, overpowering, getting louder and more enthusiastic until finally Camille gives him the look. You know, that look that only a wife can give her husband. She just gives him the look, and he quiets down, he takes a deep breath, and he says, I hear you, and I see you, Camille. I hear you, and I see you. This is a line that Zeke has picked up from their marriage therapist, and it's actually a breakthrough moment for him. He's starting to understand, even in in his long marriage and in his older age, he's starting to understand that a healthy relationship is less about winning an argument and more about seeing, listening, understanding where the other person is coming from. Sometimes just letting someone know that you hear them and see them is powerful enough to heal a hurting relationship. And this may seem like a stretch, but the same thing is true in our relationship with God. God wants us to know that God hears us. God sees us. God knows what we're going through. That's why the passage Jade just read, this 
passage about the incarnation is all about. God putting on flesh and bones and dwelling among us. That's about hearing us, seeing us, being in intimate relationship with us. We're going to get there in a little bit. I'm going to talk more about that. But before we do, let me just recap kind of where we've been in this Temple Presence series. Throughout this series, we've been exploring how God has been present to his people, to creation, in particular ways, in particular times and places. We've really been trying to look at the entire narrative, narrative, narrative of Scripture from Genesis all the way through to the end, right? And we see God constantly pursuing new ways to be with God's people. We see um, the Garden of Eden, obviously, God living and dwelling with his people, to pillars of smoke, to the burning bush, to the tabernacle, all the way to the temple, which is where we left off last week. Melissa um, left off telling us about this complex history of the temple, which was a massive, beautiful building in Jerusalem built by uh, King Solomon, designed by King David. The people of Israel throughout the Old Testament believed that this was the place where heaven and earth overlapped, where God was present, living and ruling over his creation as their king. But here's the problem. The religious leaders, the priests at the time had corrupted the temple of God. If you go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, you can read countless examples of the corruption that was present within the people of Israel and ultimately within their temple, right? They were... They were worshiping in the temple, but their their offerings, their sacrifices had become unacceptable to God. They were committing great injustice against the people. They were oppressing laborers, widows, and orphans. They intentionally chose to disobey one of the clearest commands in all of Scripture, to practice hospitality to strangers. This situation was leading them further and further from God. And at this point, any kind of redemption was beginning to feel hopeless. Even still in Malachi, you see a faithful remnant, a a faithful group of people who eagerly awaited the ultimate temple, the true full temple of God to be revealed. These people waited and waited and waited. The time between the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament was around 400 years. Silence for 400 years. Now, of course, throughout those years, kingdoms were built and kingdoms fell. Rulers came and rulers went, but the ultimate temple of God was still nowhere to be found. So fast forward to the birth of Jesus. Even though the temple still existed, God desired to reveal himself, to reveal his presence and his kingdom in a new way. So here's the story from the Gospel of Matthew. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This prophet, Isaiah, who was prophesying about this virgin who would give birth to a son, um, wrote about Emmanuel, and he wrote about him 
hundreds and hundreds of years before he came. You're probably familiar with another text that's often read um, in Advent leading up to Christmas from Isaiah 9. Isaiah wrote, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, rather than giving the people another tabernacle or a temple, God is going to come in the form of a human child, in the form of Emmanuel. That's how God is going to be with us, is what Isaiah was saying. And I love the traditional birth stories. You know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell sort of the same similar story. But then when you get to John, John is just much more of a poet. He's not really interested in the details. He's interested in painting a poetic picture. And and that's what Jade read for us this morning. And I love verse 14. Verse 14, the first part. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the midst of a world at that time full of so much beauty and so much brokenness, the second person of the Trinity became flesh. The God of the entire universe became a human being. We must not miss how amazing the incarnation is. C.S. Lewis called it the grand miracle of Christianity. Hundreds of millions of people, I looked it up, I think it's two billion, will celebrate the incarnation of God in just a few weeks on Christmas morning. But with all the familiarity of Christmas, and I'm even looking out at you all right now, this doesn't seem that amazing or new or fresh or profound to us, right? Have we missed the point? Have we grown numb to the life-changing significance of the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ? Almost 90 years ago, Dorothy Sayers said, the incarnation is the most dramatic thing about Christianity, and indeed, the most dramatic thing that ever entered into the mind of man. But if you tell people so, they stare at you in bewilderment. Don't her words ring just as true today as they did almost 100 years ago? Sure, millions will celebrate Christmas, but is, what is the focus really on? Is it really focused on this incarnation of God? Don't get me wrong. I love exchanging gifts. I love watching all, you know, Elf and It's a Wonderful Life and all the different traditions that come with Christmas. But do these things really compare with witnessing the mystery and the majesty of God becoming a human? I want to look just a little closer at the significance of this this reality of God becoming man and dwelling among us. I want to just unpack two things. First, I want to unpack that it may not seem that profound to us today, but in the original time when this happened, the person of Jesus Christ, when, when Jesus is born, humanity can finally see God face to face, okay? So let's talk about that. Many of us today, 
we reduce the birth of Jesus to something that just had to happen so that God could die for our sins, so that Jesus could die on the cross. And, and that's fine. That's good. We need to, to highlight that and focus on that. But we don't really care much about, you know, the years in between the birth and the death. But if we could go back, if we could place ourselves in the original context, if we could be part of this people who had been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years to encounter their God face to face, maybe we could catch a glimpse of what they might have felt. Because while the tabernacle, this movable tent, and the temple, this this permanent building, they did provide symbols of God's presence, at the end of the day, the face of God, the identity, the true fullness of God remained unseen. It was unseen. The glory of God was not accessible to the people. That's why John 1, 18, a couple verses after what Jade read, says, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. So when Jesus was born... We don't need the tabernacle or temple anymore. He becomes the new temple. He makes God's presence visible and tangible to everyone around him. He's the word of flesh who who became, or he's the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That word dwelt um, is actually the same Greek word that is used for tabernacle. So it could be translated that Jesus tabernacled among us, right? I love Eugene Peterson. He paraphrased the entire Bible. It's called The Message. Um, if you haven't read it, get your hands on it. But I love how he paraphrases John 1.14. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, right? This is like a neighbor moving next door to you. That's how close God became to the people. That's what it means for for Jesus to be the new tabernacle or temple of God. Verse 14, we have seen his glory. We have seen it with our own eyes, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. For the first time, Since the Garden of Eden, the very face of God, the full glory of God can be seen, no longer hidden in the holiest of holies, no longer confined to the the back room of the temple, no longer limited by these symbols. God is available to be seen by the people with their own eyes. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God's glory is displayed in the face of Christ. And Hebrews 1, 3, I love this, says that Jesus is the radiance. It's like shining so brightly off of him. He's the radiance of God's glory. A couple of my professors at um, college when I was in a class all about the incarnation, they, they actually wrote a book on it and it's been really helpful. And I love this little quote that just puts it so clearly. They say, the face of God concealed from Moses and all others until the incarnation is revealed clearly and concretely in the face of Christ. In other words, the temple presence of God has moved from a sacred place to a sacred person from a sacred place like the tabernacle or temple to a sacred person. This is a huge deal. 
Jesus himself made clear how important this was when he turned over tables in the temple courts, right? I'll summarize the story briefly. This is one of those really cool moments in Jesus that we we get to see. But basically the people had been using the temple and, and the courts outside the temple as a marketplace. They were selling things and exchanging money, taking advantage of people, and they were not using it as a sacred place to come and worship God. So Jesus shows up to disrupt what they're doing, right? Listen to this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. He's trying to get them to see the new temple of God is not the building, it's found in the body of the man, Jesus Christ. Here in him, heaven and earth collide. He's both fully God and fully man at one and the same time. What this means for you and me is that when we look at Jesus, we see not only what God is like, but we also see a picture of what true humanity can look like. So that's the first thing. In the person of Jesus, we see God face to face for the first time since the Garden of Eden. Now, I want to talk a little bit more, not just about the fact that we see God in Jesus, but what do we see about God when we look at Jesus? First, we see a God who is humble enough to be born in poverty and obscurity. We see a God who chooses to grow up through the innocence of his childhood years all the way through the awkward years of being a teenager. I know we don't have a lot of teenagers here, but if you can remember your teen years, they're awkward, right? They're difficult. You're kind of growing up. You're figuring out who you are. Jesus did that too. In Jesus, we see a God who embraces all the things that make us human, all the beautiful things, like wedding feasts where we get to connect with friends and family over good food and drinks, just spending time with the people we love and caring for those around us. God, Jesus not only embraces all the good parts of the human life, right? All the things we love about being human. He also embraces and does not avoid the hardship of human life. In the church today and certainly throughout history, we haven't always known how to talk about Jesus. This mysterious union of divinity and humanity, it's not the easiest thing to understand or explain, which has often meant that people tend to prioritize one or the other aspect of Jesus's identity. In some circles, the humanity of Jesus is at the forefront, so much so that his divinity is questioned or doubted. In other circles, and I think this is more prominent in our context today, the divinity of Jesus is emphasized so heavily that his humanity gets lost. And this may not seem like a big deal, but it's been a huge problem throughout church history. The church has had to call out heresies and false teachings that have tried to reduce Jesus down to either God or man, rather than embracing the mystery of this one person having both human and divine natures. 
And it's not that I think any of us are heretics or false teachers here. But, but I do think, don't worry, it won't burn you at the stake. Um, but, but I do think that many of us forget We forget about the humanity of Jesus, right? We forget that he knows what we go through as humans. He knows about the trials we face. He knows because he's been there too. He knows about the ups and downs, the sorrows and joys of life. He knows about the weaknesses we all have, the hardships that we face, the struggles of life. Listen to this from Hebrews 4. I think this is so powerful, talking about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Because of Jesus, our God knows what it's like to grieve the loss of friends and family. Our God knows what it's like to cry out in desperation when life is just too much to bear. He even knows the painful reality of death itself, even death on a cross. In Jesus, our God does not hide from death or all the painful realities of humanity, but experiences it himself. This is a God who's willing to lay down his life for the sake of others. While the world around us tends to define glory as success or power, something you gain from competing, something you get at the expense of others, right? You just, oh, it's so glorious when I made it to the top. In Jesus, glory seems to be the exact opposite. We see glory on display as self-giving love, self-emptying love for the benefit of others. That's the paradox of the cross. You would not think of the cross as a glorious moment, right? To those watching, it looked like weakness. It looked like foolishness. It looked like death was winning the fight against God. But Christ himself called his crucifixion the moment when the father would glorify the son and the son would glorify the father. In other words, the cross clearly reveals the nature and character of our God. We have a God who's not only with us in suffering, but a God who suffers with us and for us. Let me repeat that. We have a God who's not only with us when we suffer, when we face pain, we have a God who suffers with us and for us. That's what it means for Christ to empathize. Going back to that Hebrews 4, he empathizes with us. Not just sympathy, right? Empathy and sympathy are different. Sympathy is, is, is good. It's just feeling sad or upset for, for what's happening to someone else sympathizing with them. But empathy, on the other hand, is about really suffering with them, really experiencing what they're going through or experiencing. Empathy, if we go back to that analogy I gave in the beginning with Zeke and Camille from Parenthood, empathy isn't just taking their statement, um, I hear you and I see you. Empathy goes a step further. It doesn't just hear the person and see the person. It feels and experiences what that person is going through. And Christ is able to empathize with us. And here's even more good news about the person of Jesus. We see that death is not the end of the human story. It's part of the pathway to new life. By embracing 
the fullness of human frailty. God redeemed even the most appalling part of human existence, death itself. So when Jesus is resurrected from the dead on the third day, we see a God who not only knows our pain and suffering, and not only a God who can suffer with us, we see a God who can do something about the pain and suffering that we face. Jesus is the resurrection. He's the new life, and he's making all things new. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He turned water into wine at a wedding party. And now Jesus is still doing those things. He's still making all things new. Whatever it is that you and I face in this life, grief, loss, loneliness, sorrow, whatever it is, Jesus has faced that too. And he can do something about it. That's where I want to leave us today. Um, I want to leave us with the good news that in the person of Jesus, we can finally come face to face with God who made us and knows us intimately. In Jesus, we see a God who knows about the overwhelming beauty and the heartbreaking pain of human experience. Jesus knows what this life with all of its ups and downs and eventually what death is like, but he also knows how to bring resurrection and new life out of it. So to close, I want to do something a little bit different than what we normally do on a Sunday. Normally, you might have even noticed with this, with this message, it was a little different. Um, normally, you know, we talk and I'm trying, we're trying to give good information to you about the Bible or about God. Um, but today, I really just want to, I want to leave some space for you to encounter Jesus um, and for each of us to ask God what God might be doing in this moment and, and how we can see him. There's a prayer practice that um, really my wife Shannon told me about. She's much more familiar with it. So if you have questions about it after this, go talk to her. It's, it's great. She'll tell you all about it. It's called a manual journaling or some people call it a manual prayer. And with, the, with today's talk, I just felt like it would be perfect for us to just spend a moment in a manual prayer. It's a time to, it has all these different steps, so we're just going to do a, a very um, shortened version of it, you know. It's a time when you, you find God, you find Emmanuel in the gratitude moments and in the hardship moments, and you just have a conversation with God about it. That's what Emmanuel prayer or Emmanuel journaling is all about. But today, I just want to focus in on just one thing as we do this, and I want us to reflect just on something that we're going through in life right now. It could be something really good, that feels exciting and, and joyful, or it could be something hard that you're dreading, or you just, you can't figure out what's going on. And I, I wrote out a question, if it's helpful, we can just uh, reflect on this question. Is there somewhere in your life that you desire more of God's empathetic presence? So we're going to reflect on that question. We're going to leave a few minutes just for prayer. But when something comes to mind, I just invite you um, to bring it before God and just have a conversation. Don't just talk at God. Also listen to see if God has something to say in response. And remember that God is with you. God understands what you're going through and God can do something about it. That's what I love. One of the things I love about a manual prayer or a manual journaling is there's a section called thought rhyming. And that's really what we're doing t tonight, uh, today is just taking a few moments to share your thoughts with God and then listen back and God usually says a few things in response. One is, I can hear you. 
Another one is, is I can see you. I see what you're going through. I, I am with you in what you're going through. And then the last one is my favorite. I can do something about it. So we're just gonna take a few moments, maybe four or five minutes now to listen and, and talk to God about this time of prayer. So Holy Spirit, guide us now as we pray.
So God, we bring all of this to you now. Whatever it is we're facing, the, the joy of life, the sorrow of life, we hold it before you and we trust that you hear us, you see us. We trust that you are with us and even more, God, even as hard as it is sometimes to trust, but we do, we trust that you can do something about it. And so help us see um, the ways you are leading us, the ways you're guiding us, and the ways you're, you're shaping us and forming us into who you have created us to be, who you've created us to become um, in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.